This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Eben Novi Williams, and this is the LSU Millions Sports Business Podcast, the Sportacast. All right. I don't know if I love it. Not terrible. People know right off the bat what you're talking about, that the LSU Tigers have a new football coach in Brian Kelly. And it's nice that Brian announced it before the school did, like it was all over his profile. Just for fun, do I get one more Ed Ogeron voice out of you? No, (laughs) absolutely not. We've retired that like he has retired from college football coaching temporarily. (laughs) By the way, I saw his quote, something like I get to coach the best football players or in the country or something. Would you be annoyed if you were a Notre Dame football player? Like, wait a minute. I understand if this is about money because you went from like two and a half to nine plus and, and all the other perks. But he comes out and says, you know, I get to coach the best football players in the country. Ouch. Come on. There's so much about this that would annoy me if I was a Notre Dame football player, including the fact that they heard about this on social media, obviously. And then I don't know if you saw, but but Brian Kelly, the next day, scheduled a 7 a.m. 7 a.m. Meeting yeah, for that last two minutes. To talk about it. And yeah, it lasted just a couple minutes. Taking if no I, questions. If I'm a Notre Dame I will player, no I questions. think there's not a chance in the world that I'm waking up to, to get to that meeting to hear Brian Kelly talk about why he's he's leaving for a, a, a better job. That, yeah, that would... Uh, uh, that's a non-starter for me. So you're blo- you're blowing off Brian Kelly. You're blowing. You didn't I go. You're I'm not getting off at the seven a.m. I think I'm okay. blowing off that meeting. Yeah, for sure. All right. Yeah. I mean, but l- let's talk about sort of the economics of all this. Uh, you, you can't ignore uh, not only Brian Kelly, but of course Lincoln Riley going to USC. And let us be clear, as our colleague Daniel Libet uh, m- made clear for everyone, that they are not buying his homes. USC is not <laughs> buying his homes in. Uh, Oklahoma for whatever X over appraised value. That is not happening, said the realtor. But I am interested just on a little slant of a sports business story. And you and I talked about this. You know, what is the value of that home now? Like, can you ask a, a premium because it was the coach and now it's been involved in all this? Yeah, it's funny. It's 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 uh, that tweet you're talking about went viral. A lot of people picked it up uh, without verifying if there was anything accurate about it. But it's a totally realistic thing to think about. Coaches' houses sometimes do work their way into these contracts. If, if you remember when Greg Schiano was at Rutgers the first time, 
They lent him $800,000 to build a house on land that the school owned. They forgave $100,000 of, uh, of, of the loan for each year he stayed there. When he left, he got to sell the house, keep the profit, pay back the school, etc. Um, so so it's, not, it's not all that uncommon. And, and depending on where you're looking, I mean, I would imagine Lincoln Riley has one of the more expensive homes in, in, the, uh, in the Norman, Oklahoma area. He's certainly one of the highest paid uh, state employees, if not the highest in the state. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a fascinating real estate story here for sure on what happens when coaches move, how they sell their houses, who buys them, and, and, and the extent to which, in, in the case that it is, it's not with Lincoln Riley, but the extent to which these things find their way into the contracts themselves. Uh, would it be fun if we had a fantasy game here where Lincoln Riley had to was limited to spending on his home in LA what he had spent in Norman? So now, like he's he's like living in in a one bedroom, you know, somewhere on the west side of LA. You, you'll appreciate that, Scott. And, and it, it's funny that, that that you bring that up in LA because I was curious. Also, Clay Helton, who was the former coach in uh, at USC, his house was in Palos Verdes in 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 LA. Uh, which is, uh, it's like 30, 40 miles from the USC campus. For yeah. folks who, who know the LA area and, and maybe have heard rumors about the traffic, which are all all right, the idea that Clay Helton would, would work at USC and live in Palos Verdes, I think, is is totally shocking. So th- there's a lot of interesting little nuggets about college coach and, and the homes that they buy and the homes that they live in. So tell me, what are we talking about business of sports with the Pac-12 now? Lincoln Riley's going to USC. I've heard more than one per- person who like you know follows college football tell me that there'll be a national championship contender within two three years, <laughs> at a time when the media rights are coming up. Like is Larry Scott sitting back going, wait a minute, this couldn't happen while I was the commissioner. Like Lincoln Scott couldn't be the coach at USC while I was the commissioner. Bring winning football back to our conference. There's no question that that USC hiring Lincoln Riley is is a huge deal for the school, of course, uh, but also a huge deal for the conference. Um, it says a lot that Lincoln Riley, uh, it, it, if he had stayed at Oklahoma, was going to be an SEC coach in a couple of years, and and decided to instead uh, do his coaching in the Pac-12. I think that 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 is revealing on a number of levels. Uh, but no question, if you're George Klievkoff, the new Pac-12 commissioner who we had on the podcast. Uh, a couple months ago, you know, he said when he got hired, number one priority is to make this conference better at football. It's the thing that brings in all the money. It's the thing they have been very, very bad at from uh, f- from their own standards in the past few years. Uh, it looks like, again, we're not going to have a Pac-12 team in the college football playoff. Uh, I, I don't know how many, off the top of my head since 2014 how many Pac-12 teams have, have been in the, in the playoff. It's not that many. Um, yeah, this is the biggest priority for the conference and having a name like Lincoln Riley leave Oklahoma, leave a potential or a, a, an SEC job in the future to, to come out West. That's a huge deal for them. Um, and I think you can kind of say the same for in, in a different way, but, but Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame, which a lot of people would say is one of the, certainly not from a pay standpoint, but one of the highest profile jobs you can have in college football to, to, to leave that and go down to the SEC uh, where his schedule will be a lot tougher. It will be a much higher kind of competitive bar every in and out on every Saturday. I think that also says a lot about where college football is. Yeah. And thank God that players can now capitalize on name, image, and likeness because the hypocrisy would have reached absurdity levels of coaches leaving on whims. And thankfully, players can go in the transfer portal without sitting out because the hypocrisy uh, of the years of hypocrisy of what the system had allowed uh, uh, is being laid bare now. Uh, it's it's a it's imagine being these Notre Dame players or Oklahoma, and this guy sits across from you and he says, "I'll take care of you for yes, I'm committed, 
and then whenever it could be ten minutes later, he's out the door. So we, we are we are seeing a little bit more uh, of equity anyway in the the player and coach uh, paradigm. Here's another kind of funny piece of hypocrisy. When, when Lincoln Riley left, the I believe it was the president of Oklahoma told reporters, we, we would have liked to have had more notice that he left. And and remember that the Oklahoma and 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 the big and 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 Texas, yeah, and Texas essentially the, the, the news the of them looking for the SEC was broken in the Houston Chronicle. That's how that's how the Big Twelve conference found out that those talks uh, were that far advanced. So it is kind of funny to hear that president talk about how he would have liked more advanced notice on this. When, when when the biggest piece of news in Oklahoma sports history of the past decade uh, gave no advance notice whatsoever to the to, to the Big Twelve conference, uh, I think that's funny. And and Scott, you mentioned at, at the beginning that the, the money here for for Brian Kelly at least it's a ten year deal, ninety plus million dollars. There's going to be incentives laden on top of that. It is a similar in the ballpark to 10-year deals we've seen signed recently by Mel Tucker at Michigan State, James Franklin at Penn State, Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. This is now the bar for big-time college football coaches. It's 10-year deals. It's in that 85, 90, 95, $100 million range. Um, it does seem as though the minute that Mel Tucker, his deal was the, was announced a couple weeks ago, 80s around the country should have gone to their football coaches, all the ones in the big-time programs, and, and got a sense of what they were feeling because it's totally shifted the market. And as a result, having Brian Kelly at Notre Dame paid what he was, it means you you risk losing him because there's a school that's going to pay him three, four times more. All right, um, you know, and, and you know what I want to put you on. Have to be happening. N- new conversation for another show. You and Libet. I want I want answers. Have the buyout terms changed? We're paying so much money up front, so much on the annual that it, I think uh, if if you lose, have a couple of losing seasons, and they want to get rid of you. I'm wondering if the terms of buyouts have changed to be more in favor of the institution instead of the coach. They abs- I mean, they, they have, but in some ways they're going the other direction. I mean, I don't think Jimbo Fisher has a really has a buyout clause at all in his in his monster deal with Texas A and M. The the from what I looked at at Brian Kelly's LSU deal, if he wins a national title, he essentially guarantees his buyout clause, which is something I've never seen before. Uh, they're definitely changing, but it, it feels as though they're getting more more coach friendly in some ways as opposed to the opposite. Scott. Wow, wow, that e- even more power going to the coaches. I would not have guest, you know, with the upfront money and, and just sort of the annual salary. And by the way, you know what also surprised me? Let's we'll switch gears here to baseball. Um, we have uh, the Scherzer deal with the Mets. I, I love it. It's $43 million or whatever it is, 40 plus million dollars a year for three years, so 120 mil plus over three. And I, I do chuckle that he's got sort of like all-star bonuses in the deal. Like if I'm paying you 40 something million dollars a year to come in and be a starting pitcher for my team, is it not assumptive that you will be an all-star quality pitcher? I have to give you an extra 40, 50 grand if you make the all-star team. Maybe it's just, maybe it's the economics of baseball. And I do not know that if he doesn't, then maybe if it's this way, maybe it doesn't count to a luxury tax or something. I, I don't know. There must be some reason for it, but I did get a nice chuckle. In seeing that a guaranteed hundred and whatever million dollar deal includes uh, extra payment for an all star bonus, but hey, maybe maybe they'll be playing baseball, maybe they won't. That's that's what we need to know, uh, and we'll find out a little bit in the next twelve to twenty four hours. Because I'll let you fill in the blank as we record, Mister Novi Williams. Baseball is headed toward a deadline, the expiration of its labor contract. And if they do not extend the window, or even or even if they do, that's fine. They're still talking. But uh, I, I would say most people in the industry do not believe that the players and the owners are anywhere near 
agreeing to a new CBA, collective bargaining agreement, which would mean if they aren't able to moving forward, we have a lockout. Yeah, so exactly right. I think we're, we're going to wake up on Thursday with either baseball in a lockout or baseball in an extension uh, to try to get this deal done and then a, a lockout down down the line. Uh, and we've talked a bit over the past few weeks, Scott, about what's happening here. I think that this labor fight is one of the more fascinating we've had in, in, in U.S. American sports in the past decade or so. Um, and I think it, it, it kind of is, is different from at least the recent ones we've seen in, in the NBA and in the NFL, where money is obviously the central focus of almost all of these discussions. That's true here with baseball. But the baseball fight almost seems to be more about kind of the the central uh, core ideas of the, of the sport. It didn't feel as though when the NBA was renegotiating a couple of years when, ago when the NFL, uh, they had a pretty painless process. But when they were renegotiating, it didn't feel as though kind of the gap between owners and players was about, you know, the essentially the future of the sport in some ways. Baseball does seem to kind of be that way. And I'm fascinated that you and I are certainly in agreement. I don't think there's a deal anytime soon. Uh, I am certainly a little bit worried that there, there that may kind of bleed over into next season and there may be some games canceled. But th- there is a lot, a big gap between these two groups and a lot that they need to hammer out in terms of, of, of what the rules of baseball, what they have been in the past hundred years or so, what needs to change and what doesn't. All right, well, allow me to bring sort of the calming influence to Please. the hardcore seam heads out there. Do not fret if you do wake up on Thursday and your sports section or your websites have splashy headlines of lockout because right now it really doesn't mean anything. Deadlines spur action. So you know when this will matter? If teams have to start delaying spring training. That's when this will matter. a bit Because leading into this, uh, we've seen the spending, the kind of spending we have not seen in a very long time. And I know you are armed with facts and figures, but there are certain teams who wanted to get players locked up, done before a possible lockout. Because one thing that does have an immediate effect, a lockout means that all transactions cease. You cannot sign players during a lockout. So for the players who are trying to get in early, just get their deals done and have that peace of mind for the teams that are trying to lock up these star players and do not mind spending boatloads of money, uh, they are allowed to do so up until that lockout is imposed. And I know you have got some data for me that shows that these owners certainly have not been shy about opening up the wallets. I do. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Scott, because for, for people out there who are listening, who are kind of thinking about what's the difference between a lockout and a strike, a lockout is, is imposed by management. So a lockout is, is a decision by the owners to essentially put a halt to things because they don't want the offseason to continue in this way. So because it, it will be a lockout and not a strike, at least at the beginning, that could change later on, but at least at the beginning, it will essentially freeze all baseball activities. Um, and, and, and you mentioned the numbers. We've seen so many huge deals in the past even two or three days. $1.6 billion worth of free agency deals in November of this month. That is way more than we've seen in any November in the past decade plus. Uh, we've seen almost $500 million worth of extensions as well. That is also significantly more than we've seen in November at any point in the past decade. Um, this is, and, and there's a lot of things that we can talk about as motivations here. You mentioned the big one, the fact that things are about to freeze means that players and teams have an incentive to, to, to get an understanding of what their future looks like as soon as they can. Um, but there's also, I think, a part of this in which 
the, the way that Major League Baseball teams spend is going to be one of the biggest things debated both in the public and among lawyers for both the league and the union in the next few months. And baseball, at least, you know, whether this is in total good faith or not, can point to the last three days and say, look, you know, you say we don't spend. We just had a historic November. And not only that, it was not just the Dodgers, the Yankees, and the Red Sox, the usual teams. It was also the Tampa Bay Rays. It was the Minnesota Twins. It was the Seattle Mariners. A lot of the teams that I think the union historically would point to and say, look, this is a, a problem team. This is a team that's not spending to win. And as a result, you know, tanking is, you know, a word that gets tossed around. But those are the teams that opened their wallets in the past few days, which I think is going to be really fascinating to see if that influences anything moving forward in the next few weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, the key issues are, like you said, there are teams that would rather stockpile draft picks than spend money right now. And it's it's not all the teams. Obviously, that's what the spending indicates. But the union says there are enough that it helps to depress salaries because there's not enough bidders. Uh, uh, there's our basic principle again, right? More bidders means more money. And also, one of the big things the union is looking at is younger players getting paid. As analytics has taken over the sport, you're looking for inefficiencies. And what a lot of teams are finding is that there's better value in younger players who don't make as much as the older players. So the union is is contending that if there's this big switch to younger players and more value, then they want a mechanism by which those younger players can get their big contracts earlier. Sort of what we see with Wander Franco and the Rays. Now, if he had waited, what well, I don't know how many years, what, what what's the age of his 26 or whatever, you, if he had waited till like kind of unfettered free agency, he would have gotten much more money, as we can see with some some of the other deals. But if you want the security and you're a young player, you have to be willing to compromise and take less for that long-term security. That's what he did. The union would like a mechanism by which those younger players can make even more money faster. And I know there was a proposal by MLB owners to, instead of doing kind of the first six years of your service, to tie your free agency to a year. So let's say the minute you hit 29 you're a free agent whether you're that that season whether you have been in the major leagues for 2 years or, or been in the major league for 8 years i think that is a a way too high an age for for that to be an interesting conversation for the union but yes th- there's there's going to be a lot of discussion now about the service time manipulation the way in which the, the, the timing of, of players being called up does not or, or does start the clock on those first six years. Uh, but you're right, Scott. The, the the terms are very favorable for major league teams to pay players in their first six years. Uh, they have a lot of control. Uh, and as a result, they're leaning on those players more and more. And, and that is kind of one of the, the central core problems at the heart of the sport right now. You know what I learned recently, I've been, and, and it's not the same as the other major sports, that baseball has to play pay its players a certain amount of money, regardless of what happens to revenue in the sport. Sure. Like in the NBA, the, the split is based on revenue. It's about 50-50, but it is tied. If, if the NBA owners, for whatever reason, make less money, it's what's called BRI, basketball-related income, then the share that goes to the players will go down, just commensurate with the revenue. That is not the case in baseball. Baseball is committed to spend X on players, regardless of what happens uh, with revenue. And that's significant this year because we don't know what's going to happen with regional sports networks. There is a chance that if the the Sinclair, Bally's, RSNs um, go belly up, that there could be de- be a decrease of somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% in, in revenue to MLB, and yet they're still committed to paying the players X amount of money. So the, uh, there are things that I would think the owners really want to have addressed. Um, and one of, those, one of those revenue drivers, by the way, and here's a good segue, one of those revenues dri- revenue drivers in all of sports is sports betting and crypto. We're hearing about that a lot. You know, there's FTX, the, the crypto company has its logo on the umpire shirts in, in, in MLB. 
But if you're looking at that, you got to have some concern because what kind of month has it been in the sports betting uh, domain, Mr. Novi Williams, our, our colleague, Brendan Coffey, what, what was the word he used? A bloodbath? Yeah, a bad one was going to be my was going to be my answer for what kind of month it's been. Uh, some numbers from that Brendan Coffee story. Uh, I'll toss out some some companies here. Sport Radar, I believe, down twenty three percent in the past month. DraftKings down twenty six percent. Penn National down twenty eight percent. Genius Sports down more than fifty percent. Those are some of the biggest publicly traded data companies and sportsbook operators listed here in the U.S. All of them are having a, a very bad month. It seems in some ways kind of like a little bit of a market correction. Um, I, I don't think this is as much kind of a, a commentary on the, the the businesses they have and maybe more about how inflated everything was or seemed to be earlier this year, particularly in this sector. But sports betting is, is, is going to be extremely lucrative for teams. It's going to be extremely lucrative for leagues. It's going to be extremely lucrative for these companies as well. But I think there's been a kind of a tempering of expectation. It's so expensive, Scott, to operate in this world. We've, we've seen in recent deals, both with Genius and the NFL, Sport Radar and the NBA, they pay a lot of money. They give up a lot of equity to get these rights. And on the operator side, DraftKings spent, I think, three over $300 million in marketing in the past quarter, uh, and that's with about a third of the country operational right now from a live sports betting standpoint. The the, the, the barriers to entry from, from a cost and a marketing standpoint, the, the cost of customer acquisition is through the roof right now. And I think investors are starting to wake up to the idea that a lot of these companies are probably not going to be profitable anytime in the near future. It, it might take a really long time just because they have to spend so much money to be relevant at the top, top, top of sports betting pyramid right now. So I'm confused. Am I marking Novi Williams down in the buy the dip category, or am I? <laughs> and he's like, wait, you know, wait, wait and see. Or are, are you jumping in? Are you not jumping in? And we, rarely, if ever, do we give stock advice on this yeah, show. Like, do not Williams take this as advice a, or invest. Uh, <laughs> financial advisor. Um, but I will say, uh, it kind of as an interesting uh, shift that we're seeing. Uh, Win, which is you know has a has a growing sports book. Uh, it's not one of the the two or three biggest ones in 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 the uh, in the country, but but Win Interactive is, is certainly big on on the gambling and casino side. They made a very very public kind of course correction recently, where they essentially said they're going to stop doing the spending game like a lot of the big players are. It's not in the cards for them. They think they can be successful, not not needing 20% of the of the market, but but doing a lot less and also having a much smaller share. I'm fascinated to see if that approach takes root, if the market responds well to that, if that becomes maybe a direction that a lot of other companies start taking. Because the truth is that a lot of people don't have the the two and a half billion dollars in cash on their balance sheet like DraftKings does or, or, or don't have the head start that Caesars has with its rewards program, et cetera. Um, so again, there's a lot of people spending probably beyond their means right now. I think we're seeing that in the market as well. But I think you know if you were to compare win to DraftKings a little bit, you get a sense of, of the two kind of divergent approaches to online sports betting we're going to see in the U.S. All right. My two takes then based on those comments. One, those JB Smoove commercials are driving me nuts. <laughs> the, the Caesars, it's just driving me crazy. Well, you're going to see like, more of them. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's enough already. I mean, I don't even watch that much, you know, sports, but every two seconds, I feel like he's on my TV saying, only Caesars. I got it. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned DraftKings. Uh, we should probably just at least give a nod towards uh, the CEO, Jason Robbins. 
he said something interesting recently about like if you're kind of a the kind of better that's in it for really making money, you're, you're not our kind of client. <laughs> you know, we want people who are in this for fun, social fun. We don't want those kind of professional gamblers. That's not our kind of client, right? Did that open some eyebrows? Yeah, it opens some eyebrows. I mean, part of it I think is him kind of saying the the quiet part out loud. I mean, at its purest form, obviously, DraftKings does not want all of its clients to be professional betters because that's a that's a bad economic result. Uh, I think where where Jason may have either misspoke or, or or said something that was maybe a bit too honest. You know, his idea that they don't want people who are trying to profit on the sports book from playing. That is almost everybody. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, who, want, who doesn't want to profit? He can want Sashnik and Novi Williams to be the the core betters because you know you and I don't 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 have algorithms and don't know what we're doing when we're gambling. But at the core, you're still when you're betting, you're, you're trying to turn a profit. Um, I, I think the fact that he used kind of profit as as the, the delineation mark between uh, the customers he wants and those that he doesn't, I think that may be the the, the problematic line. But it is eye opening in that it's it's a it's a it's a form of honesty right here. This is a a marketplace, and and if you're a pro better right now. You hate the way that the U.S. market is shaping up. A, a lot of the betters who are having a lot of success right now are getting limited uh, extremely quickly. They're finding it very hard to place any bet of any size because sportsbooks can tell from the data very quickly if, if you seem to know what you're doing um, and, and maybe have an edge that they don't want to uh, to book your action. Uh, and DraftKings is, is, is one of those companies just like all the other ones. So if you're a pro better, it's a frustrating kind of development in the, in the U.S. sports betting market. And to hear... A CEO of, of 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 the second biggest online sports book in the U.S. kind of talking so bluntly about you know we want people who are here for entertainment only and not people who are here to turn a profit. Um, I think is is both eye opening and, and and also kind of obvious. That was some really deft size and scoping right there. The way you just sort of second largest in it right off the tongue. Right, really well done, Nobody Williams. Let's finish with a story that Emily Karen didn't. She's done a really good job uh, over her time at Sportico of sort of. Uh, uncovering the hypocrisy in college athletics. Uh, I remember her story about a year ago where she where she uncovered that feminine hygiene products were treated similarly to like alcohol, tobacco, and firearms and marketing deals, which was insane in gambling. Yeah, t- totally nuts. And some schools actually changed great their story. policies after she wrote the story. Yeah, great. Yeah. But you know, she found she was looking at some of the data, and if you haven't seen sort of the uh, Sportico. Uh, NCAA financial data tracker that we have, go check it out because it's top notch. I mean, you have. All, all, all your, all your information from how many years now do we have? How many? How yeah, long we, have, going back? we go. We go three years back, and and soon, hopefully, more coming. Wood, yeah, we're yeah, we're gonna go back to six years at least. So, all right, but you take yeah, you take a more. peek. You take a peek at what these athletic departments are spending on men's and women's sports, and one of the big differences is travel and meals between men and women. And I absolutely love the line. One of the reasons that the meal money is higher on the men's side than the women was a very basic sentence. What, what was the explanation there, uh, Evan? Yeah, I forgot. That, that men eat more. Men eat more. <laughs> men Which, eat more. I would believe that the men's basketball team probably eats a little bit more than the women's basketball team. It, it, that should not account for the fact that Washington spends six times more on food for its for its men's basketball team than its women's basketball team, or Kentucky 6.7 times, or Texas 5.8 times. It, it's a really interesting story, and I think that the, smart, the really smart thing that Emily did here is that you know she looked at basketball which is um the same size team on on the men's and the women's side there are some expenses uh that you can i think you can make an argument for kind of directly tied to revenue that maybe should be higher on the men's side for non-traveling meals seems like a perfect example of a category that should be pretty equal 
you know, it, it doesn't take into account maybe an extra tournament that the men go to. It is just what these 14 or 15 athletes uh, are eating when they're on campus. That should be very similar. Two others she looked at travel. The men's team maybe travels a little bit more than the, the women's team, but certainly not to account for a lot of these numbers. Washington spends four times more on its men's basketball team travel than its women's. And then equipment, which is uniforms, balls, things like that. Again, the kind of thing that you would hope would be or think, expect, would be relatively one-to-one at a lot of these big programs. And, and the sad truth is that in a lot of them, it's not. Even the equipment and stuff, that there are schools spending three, four, five, six times more on men's basketball equipment than women's basketball equipment. And now that we have this database, there's, there's an easy way to show just how unequal that is. Do you remember, and I don't remember which player it was, but do you remember, and it's not just college, the U.S. women's national soccer team player who told us that when they traveled, it was easy to see the women because all you had to do if you were sitting in the front of the plane was turn around and look back. And there was a direct line of like the red sweatshirts they wore. It was all red in the middle seats. In the middle seat. Yeah, that was Christine Lilly. It was Christine Lilly. Okay, they they took the cheapest seats available and every woman on the team got the middle seat instead of sort of your your window, middle, and and aisle. So Such a good visualization of of the way in which, you know, big sports organizations can spend very differently on on, on amenities and travel for for their men's and women's sides. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Still hate the underscore. I am Scott Soshnick at Soshnick on Twitter. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She likes it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which for now is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. 